Welcome back to another episode of Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai, and we are on a, another mission. We are on a mission today where we're trying to figure out how to design and build for video integration. And before we dive into this episode, if you want to learn more about building as a developer, join me at OSDC. It's the Owl Systems Developer Conference. I will be speaking there. So I will be giving a talk on best practices for debugging. We're going to have some really fun case studies on how to approach that. And yeah, that's essentially it. So I'll drop a link if you want to get tickets. They're absolutely free. If you want to meet, I will be there. It's going to be live. It's going to be super fun. It's going to be mid-November. So right when this episode comes out. All right, let's get into the conversation with Quinn. I know in the past year, I've been thinking a lot about video chat, streaming, connecting with people through video. And I know that when it comes to video options, it really comes down to Zoom, Google Meets, and and then of course, kind of like asynchronous meetings, such as maybe even using some sort of like Instagram Live, Facebook Live, stuff like that. But today I'm really excited to talk to Quinn Kramer of Daily. Quinn, thank you so much for joining because we're going to talk about video integrations. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's super fun to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Oh, that's that's so kind. And Quinn, I guess I want to first understand, you've probably been thinking about creating a developer tool for developers to more easily integrate video or build that into a platform. How has that changed for you either since the last year where a lot of consumers and users have moved? And what has that really shaped the way you want to approach building video integrations? We think that video is going to be part of everything we all do online, just in a huge way. In fact, one of the ways we talk about it is by analogy to the transition from the desktop internet to the mobile internet that happened recently enough that I think most of us can kind of remember how that felt. The internet grew up on PCs and, you know, with the web browser running on your computer. And then, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so, the, the transition started where for many people, the internet is something they use primarily or only from a mobile phone. That's even true in the US and in Europe, it's even more true all over the world. And the desktop internet didn't go away, but now the internet has this huge mobile component that's at least as important to almost all of us. And it's the only thing for many people. And we feel like the same transition is happening where we use the internet a certain way today. Lots of it is awesome, but video is going to get layered on top of everything everybody does. And in the last year, that's just been pulled forward. Like we've seen that start to happen in an accelerated way. Right. Is video difficult to build and integrate because to your point, our use case as consumers is now a lot more mobile and a lot of the architecture approach framework is still, when I say dated, I don't mean from a stack level dated. I mean, it's not yet, at least not mobile native or, or if there's some sort of disconnect and I can't even quite put my finger on it. No, you're totally right. Like with any new big thing, a bunch of pieces have to come together for it to become widely adopted and then beyond widely adopted, just something you assume. And for video, the first pieces that had to come together were enough CPU and enough bandwidth available all the time, wherever you happen to be on any device, including, as you're saying, any mobile device, that if you clicked on a video, you assume it would play or 
even more challenging from an engineering perspective if you want to start a live video experience that can't tolerate any latency or buffering or packet loss, that that live video experience would work kind of no matter what device you're on, no matter where in the world you are, no matter what kind of network connection you have. Yeah, that's really well said because I think that, I mean, this is, I feel, I feel like we're already getting dark, but I think of you have live video for just fun in terms of interacting with a friend. And then you also have a lot of times Facebook live videos, you see news sources talking about this all the time. So-and-so recorded this right before they died or so-and-so recorded this right before they went to jail or so-and-so, whatever it is, right? This, how do you factor even the issue of latency into a designing for, I should say, designing for a video integration. So so actually, what do you think are some of the best practices or architectural approaches to building video integrations with the consideration of latency? Is it maybe going towards a, a serverless approach? I think you guys also build this on WebRTC, something like that, but I'd like to learn more. Oh, I think that's really well put. You have these technical constraints. And then on top of the technical constraints, you design applications and experiences and you build frameworks and components that let you kind of repeat that work efficiently. And then you share those across an ecosystem and more people learn from those best practices. And eventually everything sort of bubbles up into a set of assumptions about just kind of how the world works. One of my favorite examples of that ever in product design is like the pull to refresh that's now ubiquitous on mobile. And, you know, we're sort of in the middle of building all of that stuff for video, both live and recorded or on-demand video. And one of the things that's fun about what we get to do at Daily, our company, is we get to build some of the plumbing and then see what people do on top of it. And it's super fun to be surprised by stuff that your friends and colleagues and customers and competitors do and then to like adjust to that new world. And some of the application patterns around video development, which you were asking about, are there's a lot of complexity to delivering video that works across all possible contexts for as many users as possible. And our whole video world is moving towards kind of the way the payments world moved, where you don't try to build it yourself. You build on top of whatever the best fit kind of platform for your use case is. So you might use Stripe for payments and you might use a similar platform for video. And that lets you as an application developer sort of focus on really what you want to do with the video rather than kind of getting the plumbing to work. One thing we all often say, though, to engineers who are interested in this stuff is go ahead and try to use the core WebRTC APIs that are built into the web browser because you'll learn a ton and it's super interesting to kind of build a proof of concept. But probably you want in the back of your head the idea that a proof of concept is going to be really helpful to your kind of thinking through your problem domain and help you in lots of ways that are hard to predict down the road with knowledge. But you don't want to do the extra work of getting that proof of concept all the way to the point where, you know, that's a piece of your production system. You probably want to swap out and use use somebody's video platform. And as you're talking about this, you mentioned the plumbing, right? So so this actually begs the question of why is building a integration for video so difficult? I mean, you, you just talked about maybe payments platforms, you know, the famous ones being Stripe and Plaid, and you don't want to rebuild that again and again and again. And I And I understand that. And Maybe now it's, it's, you know, it's 2021, just the thought of creating a transaction or a request from one bank to another, it air quotes seems simple, but why is video so difficult? And to the point where even on the consumer standpoint, most applications don't have any kind of 
live video kind of integration or feature. It's what ends up happening is like, oh, by the way, click on the Zoom link and then you get off the platform and then you, you engage in Zoom and then you come back or whatever it is. There's three things that make video hard and they kind of multiply <laughs> as you start to try to scale. One is you're using more CPU and more bandwidth for video probably than you are for anything else in your app. So as you get to the edge of what your device or what your network connection can do, there are just going to be more issues. So you know, managing the bandwidth, managing the CPU, if you can build on top of like a framework that does a lot of that management work for you, you're going to save yourself a lot of time. The second thing is that video is new. And so, as you said, like, it's not everywhere yet. It's not completely worked out. The best practices are still evolving. The implementations in the mobile SDKs and in the web browser have continued to evolve really fast, which is great because new capabilities come online all the time. It also adds to your work as a developer, the maintenance work, the bug fixes, the updates, all that stuff. So you have to know that that's true going in. And if you can kind of depend on an open source framework or a platform to help you paper over some of that newness and evolution, that's helpful too. And then the third thing is just everything is hard when you scale. And we mostly use S3 or Firebase or something like that when we're building applications today because they help you get started fast. And then you know that there's a lot of infrastructure there that somebody's already thought hard about how to scale. You don't have to use those services. You can stand up your own database on a colo hardware machine or stand up your own, put a bunch of disk drives, you know, somewhere and connect them to the network. But that's not going to be a good strategy for scaling. And one of the things we see over and over in video is that as you scale, you have these problems with people in different geographies or just handling increased traffic that is such a challenge because video is so bitrate heavy. And scaling is always hard. And if you can get some help figuring out how to scale or just abstracting away some of the scaling problems, that tends to be really valuable. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good point. I mean, when it comes to, I mean, two things that you said that really resonated with me was number one is designing for the hardware implications, right? So maybe if you are, I'm going to oversimplify this, maybe if you are just an application that needs to host a an MP3 file, or you are, I don't know what year this would be, but that could be one example. Another example is you just want to be able to showcase an image. I'm going to oversimplify this and say like Instagram in 2017, 16, before, before live. And then you also have, let's just say a push notification. These require in relativity, a lot less CPU needs, right? And so to your point, when it comes to video, at least with mobile, I guess with iPhone, you have a standardization. Now, when it comes to then MacBooks and then desktops and the, I mean, and then especially Windows, I mean, it depends on who's, you know, how are you customizing your Windows? I think that to this point, the design considerations for the hardware aspect is hard to even plan for. And then also the, the scaling aspect, which is the geographical considerations and then also the traffic. So I guess I want to go into the CPU point really quick, which is how would a developer take those considerations into building a video integration? Because I think oftentimes, like I just said, which is when you're building a mobile app or nothing that really deals with either latency or video or huge bandwidth constraints, hardware sometimes is not considered, but in this case, hardware is very much considered. So, so how do you plan for that? How do you make considerations for that? 
There's some rules of thumb, like with any slice of the technology world there, as you said before, best practices. For video, the most important thing is know how much resolution and frame rate you actually need and don't send or receive more, more pixels than you actually need. And that means that, for example, if you're in a big group video call, but you're in active speaker mode, which I think everybody's pretty familiar with now from us all being remote first for a while, you can send the active speaker's video really high resolution and really high frame rate. And then all of the other little videos that are, you know, in a bottom bar or in a side bar, you should send those much lower resolution and lower frame rate. And that's kind to the network, good to the CPU, and will mean that your video call works on devices that aren't the newest and most powerful. Wow. And so is this actually a different approach than some of the, again, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, like technologies like that? And I don't ever build with live video feeds or streaming, or I don't even know what you want to call it. So I'm, yeah, this is actually, I'm actually quite curious. Is there a difference between mobile applications that do live streaming and then what I guess you would say, maybe if you're doing a, a live class, maybe, I'm not even sure how to ask this question. No, no, that's great. And we should probably map it out a little bit because you're right. There's a ton of different use cases and you make different trade-offs and some different technology choices depending on exactly what you're doing. There's some kind of a, uh, inside video world nomenclature that's not super obvious from outside. If you're using, say, Netflix or YouTube, you're doing what video people call on-demand. So that means it's a file sitting on disk somewhere. And when you want to watch that video on your client device, that file is being fetched using HTTP and TCP in chunks, brought down over the network and played. Now, one of the nice things about on-demand, actually, I'd say there are two really nice things of, about on-demand if you're a video developer and you can kind of optimize for that use case. One is there's 30 plus years of network optimization and infrastructure build out that tries to make HTTP and TCP work really, 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 really well. So like all the CDNs know HTTP and TCP and can optimize that for you. And you can serve from global points of presence really easily because there are lots of great CDN companies that kind of make all that stuff work really well. The one interesting thing you do have to do for video on top of that TCP and HTTP infrastructure is you need to dynamically adjust the bit rate if somebody doesn't have like a great, great network connection. So you can start out trying to send a really high resolution video. If the network can't quite accommodate it, you want to have some kind of support in place from that local client device to sort of downshift to a lower bitrate video. And that is a whole set of standards that are specific to video that are built on top of TCP and HTTP. So if you see somebody talk about Dash or HLS, they're talking about sort of those protocols. Then there's Live, which if you're using Facebook Live or YouTube Live, or you're watching a live sporting event on a digital internet connection, that's probably a 20 second delay so that there's plenty of time to buffer traffic and you can still use all those same TCP, HTTP, HLS, same components. So you're, you're leveraging the same 30 years of great architecture engineering for the internet, but you're trying to push that stream out as it's going on instead of from a file on disk. And then the newer thing that we're doing so much more than we used to, you probably call something like real time. 
And that's the conversation you and I are having where we're talking back and forth. And that has to be way, way faster than 20 seconds of latency. It has to be something like 200 milliseconds or better of latency. And for that, we can't really use TCP anymore. We can't really use HTTP. We need something different. And the set of standards we use for real-time video now is generally UDP at the protocol level and RTP wrapped inside WebRTC at the at the standards level. And we can talk as much or little as little about that as you want to, because it's a whole sort of new world that lots of us are now embedded in. Yeah. I mean, I think I've never met such a nerd on on video integrations. And I really, really love this because I think that it touches every one of our lives. And for at least for me, I really come across it from a consumer standpoint. And then when it comes to from a developer perspective, I think you're right. It's air quotes new. It doesn't feel new. It doesn't seem new, but it is new in the sense of surprisingly, there's still not a lot of applications. I mean, there's a lot, but there's not a lot of applications that build this in either natively or cleanly with an integration. I think this is kind of your point as to why you're even tackling this is that it's kind of like a chicken or an egg situation. Whereas if only we had an easier way to build this, we would have a lot more. We would have a lot more if we had an easier way to build this. And so to kind of go back to your point, which is there's different frameworks or standards, as you say, in terms of approaching different types of video. So I was watching a uh, TikToker, right? So an influencer, and she was doing a live stream. And then as I was watching her, standing right next to her, something that I realized was that there was a latency issue. So with that latency issue, I did not know if that latency issue was actually created on purpose. So to your point, to have some sort of, either some sort of caching to allow buffering, or if it was just the technology wasn't quite there. But then of course, to your point, then you also have services like if you're on a Zoom session or some sort of live meeting, then there's there really is no latency, if at all. So I guess a quick question is, is that latency framework, is that a choice by design to help over-optimize other potential errors? Or why is something as simple as Instagram Live, Facebook Live, or I should say as simple as air quotes, a consumer product, why do they not take the same framework or approach as say a Zoom session? That's such a good question. And you've framed it exactly the way we do when we're trying to explain how this stuff works to our customers and friends. If you can tolerate a little bit of latency, you can deliver all other things being equal. You can deliver video that's higher quality at a somewhat cheaper per minute rate. So the first question you generally ask is, well, how much latency do I really have to kind of squeeze out of the system? And if you can tolerate 10 seconds plus of latency, you have kind of the development's a little bit easier. And you, as you say, you're papering over kind of more kinds of issues that crop up in the real world. If you have to have conversational latency, you know, the 200 millisecond or better number, then the big thing that changes is you can't tolerate any packet loss. And so you have to, you have to compress the video a little differently. You have to deliver it a little more pessimistically in terms of the video quality. And it's harder to scale it because you're not using these 30 years of kind of internet architecture built on top of TCP you're kind of routing the packets more bespoke using a lower level like UDP framework. So a lot of us are kind of trying to build that new generation of UDP architecture because it's now clear that real-time video is so powerful and impactful and kind of has 
value in so many different use cases. But we're still, we're 20 years earlier in the architecture cycle than the TCP architecture is. Does that make sense? My jaw's ajar. This is probably why you, you're like, wait, let me check in real quick. So when you say we're 20 years earlier, right now we're 20 years earlier or it's going to come in 20 years or what is this, what is this framework timeline? Kind of a super touchy-feely thing to say because I guess what I was thinking is, from the time the first World Wide Web pages were delivered, people started to think about, okay, how do I make HTTP work really well? How do we scale it? How do we make it cost effective? You know, how do we build great open source software around it? That work's been happening at least since the, the mid-90s. UDP is a, has been around just as long as TCP and delivering video over UDP is not new, but trying to deliver video at scale for lots of different use cases really cost effectively. That's really new. And so... There are no kind of just click a button in a web console and get up and running on AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure components that you can use for you know UDP video. It's all still very bespoke. And we, for example, run all of our traditional HTTP REST API infrastructure on very traditional cloud computing, high-level building blocks. But all of our audio and video infrastructure, what we call our media servers, those are all completely custom built. Like we can't use even something like out of the box auto scaling on AWS. We have to write our own auto scalers because the load profiles are just totally different for UDP real-time video and audio than they are for serving HTTP requests. So that's what I mean when we're sort of earlier in the evolution of this, there aren't as many building blocks yet that are commoditized. Wow. Wow. That's absolutely nuts. And so let me, let me, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this. So what you're trying to say is that, is there also a scaling issue if you are using some sort of cloud service provider, AWS cloud, whatever name, insert cloud provider, that that will also introduce considerations for latency as well. And so then is your approach to deliver that stream from a different cloud provider? I think you previously said that you use AWS, but I, I guess I wanted to understand this just in a broad scope kind of way in terms of what to consider when you're trying to deliver this information of video streaming and, and what is the backend that passes through? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. So we're mostly on AWS and the difference for us between the stuff that feels like we can use the commodity components and the media server stuff is kind of the level of AWS services we use. So for our REST API stuff, there's three or four or five, maybe more now ways you can kind of spin up a load balanced HTTP auto scaling infrastructure on AWS. And they all work really well. And they're all really well understood. And you can scale a web traffic business to amazing amounts of traffic without too much concern about getting off the happy path. For the media server infrastructure, we run on EC2 instances that we configure ourselves and we set up auto scaling and control for all of that ourselves. And we monitor them in totally customized ways, the metrics and observability and all of the stuff that you kind of need to wrap around a quote unquote server to make it into infrastructure is all custom stuff we wrote. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So then I guess I want to understand as to your decision to go towards this custom build is of course removing as many friction points as there already was. I mean, I think in a way, this 
is so hard to build that if you're able to remove any friction points, then you just have such a beautifully designed experience to design video integrations and live stream integrations. And as you're removing this friction point to allow more developers to build video in the platform rather than, again, hyperlinking to a Zoom URL probably, I guess another consideration that you touched on earlier was this the scaling issue and why it's so hard. And so when it comes to traffic, is the issue the traffic volume that applies pressure onto the bandwidth that is allocated? Or how should the developer be thinking about how to design an integration that has load capacity? If we do our job as a platform, then the developer doesn't ever have to worry about it, except for the client-side bandwidth and CPU limits that we talked about before. So the components for us of getting that right, or if you're building it from scratch and have to get scaling right, are geography. So it really makes a difference to put servers close to where people are in the world because you can't really cheat speed of light. And latency really matters for the real-time video. So putting servers close to people and on good network peer kind of points really matters. So you have to have a lot of servers all over the world. The second one is dealing with routing lots of packets as meetings get bigger. So, you know, in a one-on-one call, you kind of don't have a certain class of scaling issues because it's just my video going to you and your video going to me. But if you have 500 people in a sort of social video setting where they're walking around a virtual world and any of them might want to talk to any subset of other people in that virtual world at any time, then you have a lot of scaling issues with just how do you decide who gets what packets and how do you make sure you don't run out of CPU for routing those packets or bandwidth for sort of delivering those packets or Linux system call throughput for making the socket, low-level socket calls. So you have this sort of call internal call scaling issue and then the third thing is a little more traditional but you still have to kind of build it from scratch because video is just different enough the horizontal scaling of like adding servers in as you have more users like how do you spin up more servers and then how do you like make them available in your service discovery system and then how do you choose which ones are not heavily loaded sort of all that stuff and it's just like what you're doing with http except that you're monitoring a different set of stuff because the UDP traffic profiles are different. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And this actually brings up the question of what I really want to nerd out with you on is then how about the approach of video streaming within a browser and then video streaming within a desktop application? So just as an example, Zoom and then just Google Meets, right? What are the different implications and the approach to building browser-based versus a on-desktop-based The world is moving towards using the WebRTC standards for both in-browser and native apps on desktop and mobile. That's relatively new. The WebRTC standard, as all standards do, has been baking for a long time before it got mass adoption. It goes back to about 2012, but it's really only been since about 2019 that you can kind of use WebRTC across lots of different devices and use cases. But now... Apple supports WebRTC in Safari and Google supports it in Chrome and a bunch of other vendors like Cisco support it in various parts of their kind of product lines and infrastructure. And the core lib WebRTC open source project that Google maintains, which is the basis of WebRTC in Chrome, works really well 
if you kind of take on that job of like compiling and integrating it into your native applications. So pretty much today, everybody except Zoom is using WebRTC. Zoom is the outlier. They started early enough in their journey that they built using some of the same building blocks that are part of the WebRTC standard, but they really built a custom stack. And that was completely the right decision for them at that time because they, WebRTC kind of wasn't ready for mass use. So Zoom has its own really proprietary and really well-designed and good stack, but it's, it's its own little walled garden now. And I think what you usually see in a kind of big tech evolution trends like this is that the open source ecosystem eventually kind of takes over and passes all of the previous proprietary incarnations. And I think we're seeing that happen in real time with WebRTC being adopted by kind of everybody who's, who's in the market now. So then when was WebRTC introduced and then how was the infrastructure approached prior to WebRTC? I mean, I can't even, I mean, I think this, I think the tricky thing about this is that every technology, every innovation is, it's all about timing, right? It's all about, a great example is the Ubers or the food delivery in, in the 90s. There there was a food delivery app. I, I don't, it was like grocery.com. It was something. And in the 90s, you could go online, click, and then get your food delivered. But it was just so oddly placed from a timing perspective. So what really came before WebRTC or, I mean, that just must have been so difficult. I, I even think as far back, you probably have seen those historical photos of of like the concept of like, I think 40s or 50s where there's a tube TV and then you dial your rotary phone to so that to call the other person, but then you see each other on the TV. And I guess that's probably delivered through satellite. And then I'm sure there's latency issues. And I just, I don't, yeah. There've been a whole like series of audio and video networking standards that came and went or combined or evolved just before WebRTC, the, the sort of big users in the market of, of real-time video were the big video conferencing hardware vendors. So people like Cisco and Polycom and LifeSize. And they standardized more or less around a set of UDP-based protocols, RTP being the most important one. When WebRTC was starting to become it kind of was starting to get put together and really shepherded forward by Google, RTP got kind of pulled into WebRTC as one of the big building blocks. And then a bunch of other stuff got put around RTP to kind of give you the complete set of standards you need to create a, an audio video experience. Google really did a lot of heavy lifting to get WebRTC to the point where you could build real applications on top of it. So I would say, I mean, this is a little fuzzy, but I would say that in about 2015, you could do a WebRTC call in Chrome reasonably reliably on a good computer with a good network. And you could have two or three people in that call. We started our company in 2016 as a bet on video in general and WebRTC in particular. The next really big milestone from a market perspective was Apple sort of fully supporting WebRTC and Safari and mobile Safari right at the end of 2018. So call it beginning of 2019. Safari still lags a little bit behind Chrome in terms of its WebRTC implementation, but it's gotten way, way better over the last year and is, is starting to feel really solid. And then the next big, big thing was, of course, that we all moved remote and a whole bunch of use cases got pulled forward that people were kind of interested in, but they didn't feel urgent about. And my favorite example of that is first quarter 2020, you could probably ask Chrome on a mid-range laptop to render maybe nine videos for you. 
And after that, bad things would probably happen. So the video pipeline had sort of a certain level of optimization work that had gone into it. A year later, you could ask Chrome on exactly the same machine to render probably 20 videos for you, and you'd have roughly the same CPU usage and and reliability. So the Chrome team did a terrific job sort of optimizing the video playback pipeline, but they didn't do that until it was really clear that the use cases were there, which is how we all prioritize product and engineering decisions. But the pandemic really sort of focused attention on a broader set of video use cases, especially kind of larger and kind of more diverse conversations. Yeah, I think that one thing that really comes to mind is that, to your point, even regardless of working remotely or the pandemic and almost forcing everyone to connect in this way, is that this actually reminds me that this goes beyond. So video streaming, video communication goes beyond communication, at least in my mind, it's it is the closest we have to teleportation, right? That's really nice. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, it's the closest. I mean, because one example is in the past, I would at least at the very least fly to you or you fly to me, right? And then we have this conversation, we record it. But this is the closest I can get to teleportation. And I think that oftentimes where this use case of this is closest to teleportation is what you just explained, which is the Cisco's or the corporations, the really, really big companies that have big decisions to make. Also, there's also personal decisions to make, maybe grandparents in the hospital, whatever. But the point that I'm trying to make is that for early, early video, it was the Cisco's and Oracle's who had to have some sort of business meeting. And then they they would have these really chunky, clunky hardware in their offices with the long tables. And then I do remember them from 2016, kind of what you just mentioned. And And there was just such a big business need. And at this point, the ability for WebRTC to allow corporations, applications to build towards an easier way for consumers to participate in teleportation. So this is all to say, this is all to say, I kind of want to go a little bit more philosophical, which is what in the next 10 years from just your intuition what are the design considerations that will change? So RTC really changed the game, but in the next 10 years, from just a technical perspective, what also might be changing that's coming in the horizon? And then, of course, you you had so many acronyms like UDPs and the TCPs and the RTPs and IOTC, I'm just kidding. But um, I don't, what do you think is going to be uh, transferring very soon or transmuting, transmutation? Okay, now I'm just getting lost. Sorry about all the acronyms. Uh, one of our engineers wrote a great like glossary for us just so we know we're always on the same page when we're using all these network and uh, standards acronyms. It's a little bit of a professional like uh, danger <laughs> that you fall into acronym soup. What I think is going to happen over the next few years is that we're just going to start to assume that video and audio are part of kind of everything we do in every app we have, wherever that's useful. And our ideas about like where video and audio are useful are just going to continue to expand. So every collaboration tool you use with your colleagues is going to have both synchronous and asynchronous video collaboration built into it. And that's just going to be table stakes, just like commenting on a document is table stakes. I mean, I'm old enough that I remember that when the only way to comment on somebody else's document was like to print it out and mark it up with a pen and then hand it to them. And as you're talking about teleportation, like that's not true anymore. Like every single 
tool I use to share text with somebody I work with, I can comment in some way. Sometimes the commenting system is awesome and sometimes the commenting system feels like it has a lot of friction, but they all have it. And that same thing is going to be true for audio and video because there's a lot of use cases where I don't really want to type a comment. I want to add a screenshot or record a five second video. Or if I know my colleagues online, I just want to hit one button and ask them if they can answer a question for me super quickly. And then I probably want to record them answering the question and drop that into the document so that it's memorialized and we know exactly why we made that decision. And then I probably want that answer they gave to be automatically transcribed and in that comment thread so that if I'm just skimming it, I don't even ever have to watch the video again. If I don't want to, I can search for what they said because it's there in the transcription. So that's a sort of future work collaborative tools example. But what we see is people doing that kind of thing that sort of transforms the user experience by just adding appropriate audio and video kind of everywhere across everything we do. So then I kind of want to do a little recap, which is then what are some of the challenges right now dealing with building streaming? Is it the standardization? Is it the hardware considerations? What are some of the challenges right now? And then what do you think, kind of to double down on the question that I had just asked, what do you think will be then a technical challenge in the next even five years still remaining? I want to nominate a whole layer of new challenges that aren't technical at all because I think they're super interesting. And that's the application design stuff. Like what do you actually want that video and audio to really feel like? And I just love seeing people sort of designing these new things. They're all experiments. Some of them will stick, some of them won't. I mean, we have customers who are doing little floating heads of video that kind of move around and follow your mouse. And we have other customers who are doing, trying to solve somewhat similar pain points. And they're little rectangles that sort of are squished over in the corner, but they get bigger dynamically depending on what's going on in the collaborative app. And we have people building all sorts of wacky and interesting social and gaming applications that have like pieces of video in them. One of the things that like really has been food for thought for me for a bunch of years is a friend of mine who's VP of engineering at a really big gaming company that has mostly fairly young users shared a stat with us about how many of their users they know from surveys have a FaceTime or Android video call open all the time when they're playing with their friends and how much that motivated their product roadmap to add video. Because why would you want the user to have to have their mobile device next to their computer to have the video channel open. Why wouldn't you just build that into your product so you can make it a full first class feature of your UX design? I think I had that conversation with that person in 2018. So we're now sort of several years into people starting to assume video is just there for the early, early stage use cases. And that's just going to expand to be everything we do. Yeah. I think that to your point that it's just going to expand into everything that we do. And it's, it's so ubiquitous that it's not about, should we design for this? It's how can we design for this? How can we bring this in to the fold? But I think to your point is, it's not just about the tech stack. It's about what is the use case? Because video, video has so many different types of use cases. And depending on that use case, again, to your point, does it need is it okay if there's a little bit of latency? Because if so, then we can go this way. If if this is, you know, mission critical or this is, it would just completely ruin the experience if Zoom had these weird lags between the two streams, that wouldn't work. And so just a tangent a little bit, I guess something I wanted to understand, which is then when engineers are building this, then at what point or in what situation 
Are you actually deciding to send feeds via satellite? So maybe it's a new station who needs to have uh, who have their satellites or they rent satellite space or whatever it is and have that news transmitted through a satellite for broadcasting versus then over the internet. I mean, these are two different mediums at this point. Yeah. And then, or is everything going to move from satellite into internet completely one day and then we won't rely on internet, but then what if there's an apocalypse and then the internet's down, but then satellites are still up? I think the way this stuff always happens is there are these professional level tools and they're really expensive and they're really complicated. They have a super steep learning curve. And then as use cases expand and like we get better at figuring out how to do interesting stuff across a broad range of kind of people and situations, you get prosumer tools. And those prosumer tools are still a little bit expensive. They have a little bit of a learning curve, but like anybody who was motivated could kind of get up and running. And then the final step is, oh, here's the like 20 things that those prosumer tools do that are useful to hundreds of millions of people. Let's take those 20 things, decompose them and build kind of abstractions and plumbing and standards and core components and platforms and services for them. And then they just disappear into every developer's workflow and every app. And developers can kind of pick and choose from this really easy to use menu of things and just get that subset of features they need. And where we are in video now is somewhere between prosumer and the democratization of the developer and the user experience. Like people who are doing really sophisticated live streaming are not all professionals anymore. They're like Twitch streamers using OBS. But you can also see like really impressive live streaming happening on TikTok baked into a mobile app. TikTok is sort of the leading edge of that like video everywhere wedge, but everything's going to look like that in a few years where we just have those features available as like pretty accessible developer building blocks. And the super fun thing for us, like I've been building like internet video stuff for a long time. I really like the low, low, low level challenges, like just how do you route these packets fast enough? But I have to say, I think the most interesting thing going on right now is the API design level. So how do you make this really complicated stuff accessible to developers who shouldn't have to figure out, like you said, whether the packets are routed by satellite or whether they, what's the difference between five seconds of latency and 10 seconds of latency? Like if we do a good job with API design, you should never have to know that as a developer. You should just be like, oh, this is live, but it's live at scale and it's not conversational versus, oh, this is conversational it's 200 milliseconds latency, I got it. And the same APIs should like super elegantly support both of those. Well, Quinn, that was such an elegant way to walk us through the whole architecture approach landscape of video integration. And what I've really realized is that this is not just a daily occurrence that we come across, but this is something that is actually surprisingly new and there's just so much more to pave and so much more to build for. So Quinn, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks, it's really fun to talk about trying to build the future. Thanks for humoring me. Yeah, okay, what a wonderful, elegant, just elegant presenter. And I think that what I really appreciated about this episode was that Quinn was able to get into the meaty parts of helping us developers understand how to build for such a difficult infrastructure such as video integration. And yeah, are you building a project with video integration? I mean, let me know what you are building. I highly want to encourage you to reach out. My DMs on Twitter are open. I actually get them a lot. So 
for those who do reach out, feel free to reach out because I'm happy to help and direct you to the right resources or if I myself am able to support. Because at the end of the day, like I just want to make sure that whatever it is that you're building, I'm able to just be a support as a dev advocate, as just someone who's so passionate about building applications and going towards the technical challenges. So yeah, if you like this, I would highly, I would highly say like another thing is the Netflix episode. So we have a episode in season three where we talk about similar to video, really what it's like to be a UI engineer in the uh, Netflix ecosystem. So check out that episode. Feel free to reach out, letting me know whatever you're building, happy to help. And until next time, you guys, I'll see you in the next episode.